Yuval Noah Harari said, history is not about remembering the past, but rather liberating ourselves from it. Welcome to the Breaking Bias Podcast, the show where we explore the stories and experiences of people from all walks of life. We are on a mission to inspire new thoughts and dialogue in an effort to challenge bias and cultivate connection. I am your host, Heather, and joining the conversation today is Fega Horesh. Fega is a public historian specializing in American history. They are a tour guide, writer, and podcaster. Today, we'll dive into some of America's sordid history and hear from their perspective on the many unknown tales and inaccurate stories, perhaps, of history. Welcome to the show, Fega. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I'm happy to have you. Before we dive in, I always like to start by having you give us an idea of your backstory. So this is really, we're going way back here. So we're looking for kind of your origin story, impactful events that happened in your youth, um, impactful events or themes maybe. So religion, politics, family dynamics, things like that. Sure. Uh, so I actually took notes on SEPTA on my way over here on this. <laughs> so um, I was raised in the suburbs of Philadelphia in a pretty well-to-do suburb. I really was raised in that sort of like upper middle class achievement culture sort of thing. Like sort uh, the, the book that I always recommend to people to understand that sort of class structure is um, it's Fear of Falling by Barbara Ehrenreich. Um, and it really talks about like how there's this fear in the upper middle class of, of losing that class status. And I definitely grew up with that. There was a big issue with like a lot of suicidal ideation. Um, a lot of kids like died by suicide when I was in high school because the pressure was just too much. Um, but throughout that, uh, I was lucky enough, my parents weren't as intense. So they had some very specific uh, desires for me. But not nearly as intense as some of those parents were. Uh, I always loved history and music. And I really, especially with music, it's like the social part. It's the making something together that I find the most appealing. Religion-wise, uh, I was raised by an aggressive atheist. is <laughs> my father and my mother's agnostic. They both had a Jewish parent. And I was raised with some Jewish stuff, but mostly it was just like what my dad literally called just like capitalist American. Like we celebrated Christmas because this is actually what my father said. <laughs> he wanted to celebrate uh, like the capitalist side of living in America with all the presents and stuff. It was sort of odd, I now know. But as an adult, about 10 years ago, I reconnected with my Jewish roots and it's been really wonderful. It really feels like coming home. And uh, they were both, both my parents were died in the wool of Democrats, but they did have Republican friends who came over frequently. So I did see a lot of sort of across the aisle discussions, as it were. Most of the time they were civil. Occasionally they blew up a little bit. But as a result, I feel like, I mean, this was this was the Republican Party of the late 90s, and early 2000s. So this was a different, it's a whole different animal from what we have today. Uh, but I think it was valuable to be able to see that. Yeah. And uh, I, it seems it, it seems wrong to not mention, although I don't know how it fits in with any of the stuff I talk about. But um, I'm also a survivor of childhood sexual assault. So that's in like everything in my life. Well, that's that's definitely a big event from childhood. Um, and it it's one of those things where I think it needs to be said because it doesn't need shame. 
And whether we like to admit it or not, it does direct some of our ways of oh, being. For sure. um, so I appreciate you sharing that. I'm. It, you said you've always been interested in history. How was it a class that sparked this for you, or do you know where that stemmed from? Yeah. So when <laughs> when I was six, my father purchased a computer game. This was a CD-ROM game called Pepper's Adventures in Time, okay. and it was uh, from I think it was, I think it's called Sierra is the name of the company. They made up a lot of like very strange computer games. And in this game, Pepper, this kid who has an evil mad scientist uncle who lives in the attic and he made a time machine and she like falls into it and she goes back into revolutionary America and she has to like fix all the things that are wrong. So Ben Franklin is like become a hippie sitting in a bathtub, like just (laughs) just hanging out, having a good time, no interest in science. And it was a really interesting game because it, it incorporated so much history into some very silly things. Like, for example, when Pepper shows up, she has to, like, get a disguise on. And she – because she gets in trouble for being a girl wearing pants. I mean, that's, like, the beginning. And so she ends up cross-dressing, uh, which I think it's it's appropriate now that that was my <laughs> inspiration. And it set off this, like, hyperfixation on Benjamin Franklin for my elementary school years that eventually grew into, like – actual historical research into American history. But uh, it is funny to me that now I am a tour guide in Philadelphia where I spend a lot of time talking about the American Revolution, whether I like it or not. And I am non-binary and Pepper was like, I guess my like 1993 non-binary icon or something. Like, I don't know. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I love that. I, you know, actually it's funny because I saw, um, on your social media, you did a post about how you used to do reenactments. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew someone growing up, um, one of my course classmates that did that. And I never really understood it. Um, would you explain a little bit of that to the audience that might not understand what that is? Because especially since now you're a tour guide and you're kind of deep into all of that, this was also kind of a starting point because you mentioned, um, tr- was it trousers in that? <laughs> In yes. That post as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I got into reenacting because I was lonely. Um, I was, uh, I had gone to college in rural Ohio and stuck around and was like, just didn't have a lot of friends. Cause it turns out when you move from a urban area to a rural area, people aren't really in the, like it, looking to make new friends. Cause they've had the same friends since they were like five. And so it, it can be a little lonely. And so I, there was a civil war reenacting group who was recruiting at the grocery store. And I was like, heck yeah, let's they do it. They were recruiting at the grocery store. <laughs> okay, hold on. I just have to pause for the visual. This is hilarious. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I I joined up and it became very clear to me very quickly that uh, doing – they're called impressions. An impression as a woman is super boring. And so I did a ton of research into women who uh, dressed as men to fight, which actually is – in the Union Army was very prominent. It wasn't so common in the Confederate Army, but I didn't want to be a Confederate anyway, so that was fine. But in the Union Army, we there, the estimate, the conservative estimate is somewhere around maybe two, 3,000 women served uh, dressed as men. And we don't know for sure, but that, that estimate is based on a lot of archaeological evidence of where they 
dug up a lot of a lot of these sort of hastily dug graves and places like Antietam and found have found these female corpses. And um, so that's it's just sort of they do the math based on what the percentages they find. Yeah, it was it was it was a way to make friends. And it was a way to I when I was really little, not really little, I guess when I was like 10 or something, I had volunteered at a living history museum in my town. And they did actually the same era, 1860s, but it was like in a town, not the war stuff. And when we moved to Philadelphia, I was really upset because there was no opportunity for that. There wasn't really a living history place and certainly not one that had a program for children. And so as a like 22 year old who's a little lonely living in rural Ohio, I was like, yeah, let's do this. <laughs> so I real quick learned a whole lot about the Civil War and learned a lot about that world. The whole world of reenacting and like historical costume and so forth is fascinating. When I moved them back to the Philadelphia area, I, I dropped it for a variety of reasons, mostly at the time because it was really hard to train a bunch of men to not be weird about me being there because, of course, they knew I wasn't a man because, like, you know, we'd have meetings and plain clothes, you know. Um, and I didn't want to train a whole new group. <laughs> so I uh, – and I was moving also to New Jersey, and there's – the firearms laws are a lot stricter. And I was just like, I don't like this enough to deal with all of this. So I just, you know, sold my gear and moved on. Oh. But I love following people on, like, TikTok and stuff who still do that stuff. So interesting. It's definitely a subset that I think probably a lot of people aren't even aware of. It gets weird. Like, it gets really weird really fast. <laughs> what? Okay, hold on. Define this a little bit for us. Uh, so there's different, like, levels of reenacting. Uh, in Civil War reenacting, which I know the most about and is also the most popular uh, time frame for people to reenact in, there's, like, people who are – not super serious about it. Uh, the not very nice term for that is a farb. Um, that's like what we would walk around and be like, ugh, that farb unit is here or whatever. But like you wouldn't say that to their face because that's mean. Uh, I don't know what they call themselves. Mainstream, I think. I don't know. But uh, they basically, they're just like, they're there to have a good time. Like they're not worried about like how many stitches per inch on their uniform. They've got like a blow up mattress in their tent. They have a tent. They don't they have like a like an officer's tent, even though they're private, you know, like they're they're just there to do some camping and drink around the fire, which is fine in, in funny outfits because, you know, it's fun. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, there's the hardcore units who are like some of them won't even participate in battle reenactments because it's not a real battle like with actual bullets, but they'll like bring like live chickens with them to slaughter. Like the, it gets like. It's a lot. Uh, I didn't interact with very many of those guys just because they weren't at the events I was at. And then we were in the middle, and I can't remember what the name for us middle people were. But we were basically like everything that was in view had to be as precisely correct as the hardcore people. But we would have like a cooler hiding in the bushes because like we weren't authentic enough to get dysentery. You know, like <laughs> we wanted to keep food safety up oh my gosh okay i love it sorry yeah no there's i um there is a book if anybody's interested in this called i think confederate in the attic that goes into 
the sort of just like weird culture of Civil War reenacting. Because there's also people who are like really relitigating this war. Like (laughs) I was in Ohio, so it wasn't a ton of that. But I've heard stories (laughs) of other places where it's still going for some folks. It's not resolved yet. On that note, uh, yeah. So I think that it's still going for a lot of people could probably be applied to some other things as well, which is fascinating. And, and history is one of those things that some, actually a recent guest brought this to my attention and I've been thinking about it a lot is especially in the climate that we're in where so much information is inaccurate. Um, I believe, again, I believe I saw you point this out, but like we have, there's paywalls to verified sources sometimes. Yep. And so, so I guess my question is, how do you know what you read is real or true? And are you going beyond the real or true and looking at whose perspective it's actually being told by? So the, the quippy answer is, we don't know. I mean, um, that will upset some of my fellow historians, but it's it's true. Like, we don't really know. But we 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 have very good educated guesses. And a lot of that comes from what you were talking about at perspective. So when you when you have a history teacher that teaches you the actual practice of history versus just memorizing dates and events and things like that, which is the least important part of learning how to do history, because especially in this day and age, I'll look it up on Wikipedia. It's fine. Like nobody needs to remember dates anymore. But the <laughs> get some people upset with me. Um, but the 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 main thing is being able to assess your sources. That is the number one most important thing in historical research. Because the fact of the matter is, just because it was written in contemporary to whatever event you're researching, doesn't mean that it's true. I mean, we're we talk a lot about fake news now. The idea of having the news actually like fact checked is a really new concept. Like you go back to like the early 1900s, they were just making stuff up. Like we we went to war. The Spanish-American War basically happened because uh, William Randolph Hearst wanted to sell more newspapers. Like and there's a little more to it than that. But it was a, a lot of the like the remember the Maine and all this stuff that got people really like pumped for this war was because the newspapers were making a big fuss about it. Remember the main, the main literally like somebody was smoking in the wrong room. That's why it blew up. And they knew this. We know this. There's no mystery. But it still has gone down as this like historical mystery. What happened to the main? Remember the main? We got to go off and take over uh, the Philippines for some reason. I don't know how that was related. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that is just who's written the history and also mm-hmm. how we and actually this is in, in with like the sources how we know what we know what the sources we use so even though newspapers are terrible sources until i don't know exactly when you'd place it sometime in the 20th century we still use them a lot and they're still respected as a type of source it's just you know you take it with a grain of salt and you want to verify it with other sources. Um, the, per- the good sources are things that are like lists of numbers and stuff that nobody thought anybody would care about. And th- that's where you get the really good stuff because there's no reason to lie. But um, there's other ways of remembering history that are less common in European-American contexts or more common, more common in less European-American contexts like oral history and stories and songs and things like that. Um, so other like communities that aren't 
European American use oral history and song. And I just I just released an episode of my podcast, Delicious of History, where I was interviewing an author, Mac Little, who did a book about that was a, that's a historical romance that takes place in Barbados in the 17th century. But one of the things we talked about was how she was raised with all of these traditions that she later found out when she was doing that more traditional historical research that literally like linked back to her ancestors who were enslaved and brought over from West Africa. Like there's this whole thing in the book about duppies, which is this this mythical being that uh, can appear if somebody dies in a really violent terrible way and they like take revenge and things like that and she was raised with like don't be go out after dark because i forget what she called it but she had a different name for it but it was the same thing it was a duppy and it's a reflect it's it's spirituality but it's also a reflection of the things that have happened in that community and we don't until recently things have changed a lot in the last like 10 15 years until recently if we even listened to that stuff, it was thoroughly discounted because, I mean, I think I think every history class at some point has done the telephone game where you start with one person with a story and they like pass it down the line and then you fu- see what it is at the very end. And it's always something very different because it's little kids whispering in ears and they don't know how to do that. But isn't it such a great representation about how when we we call things facts, but it's like okay, but who's facts? Right. And to be fair, we can look at some things and say, okay, this is a better source. I feel good trusting. But there's always going to be some level of question. Yeah. And that's always my favorite if I like step in in it as a tour guide, because sometimes I think I've got the vibe of a group. And then all of a sudden they get they they are not quite on the same level as I am. And I'll like, make a joke and just say like, well, I don't know. I wasn't there. Um, <laughs> and that usually gets me out of trouble. But yeah, I mean, even even like things like the thing that always comes up here in Philadelphia is the Betsy Ross story. And this is such an interesting example because Betsy Ross comes from oral history. Betsy Ross, the story of Betsy Ross, so for those who aren't familiar, is the traditional story, which is like up there with like George Washington chopping down a cherry tree and all that nonsense of like sort of these these ideas of historic of our American origin, imaginative stories and so forth. She was a upholsterer and she like in the middle of the night gets a visit from uh, George Washington and oh, no, I forget his name. Her late husband's uncle, who was an imp- who was an important mover and shaker in the Congress. And they brought this design for the flag and they said, hey, can you can you sew this? And she's like, yeah, I'm an upholsterer. That's what I do. And she asked them, why did you pick six-pointed stars. And they said, well, we thought it would be easier. And she's like, nah, five-pointed stars are way easier. They're like, okay, do that. And that's how we got our five-pointed stars and the flag. And this story comes from her grandson. There's no, um, there's no, like, archival evidence of any of this. I personally think the story is plausible because we do know that she did sew flags later on for the Pennsylvania Navy. And she had just lost her husband, who was the nephew of this guy in Congress. And if there's one thing Philadelphians know, it's, you know, you know a guy. When you know a guy, that's who you use. So, like, it, it makes sense that he'll be like, hey, I'm going to kick some work 
to to my nephew's like widow. And also there were like 20 flags rolling. We didn't know what flag was going to be the flag. I mean, I would have voted for the one with the beaver on it. Like <laughs> we didn't know which was going to be the flag. But for some reason, this story is so entrenched, even though it comes from this oral history that in most cases, when we're talking about usually non-white communities, we discount out of hand. But man, I've gotten people mad at at saying that there's no actual evidence that Betsy Ross sewed the first American flag. Oh, my. All right. So I want to go back to something that you said um, a little bit ago. There are better sources. So as a historian, what are some sources that you feel confident in um, that would be accessible to people that are not historians? Well, accessible and is, is not always <laughs> the, the, the easy thing. So for me, it depends on what I'm researching, obviously. But for example, I recently did a bunch of research on taxation in colonial Philadelphia. And I was doing this because there's a lot of stories that tour guides like to tell in Philadelphia that are – they sound like nonsense because they are. So it's stuff like, oh, the the reason why our, our houses are in rows is because they would have been uh, taxed based on the number of walls. What? No. You know, they would have been taxed on the number of windows. It's how many steps up to your door. Like, it, it all sounded ridiculous to me. So I did some research. And – I found a book which is not the most accessible book in the world, but it's filled with all of these charts and somebody, a historian at some such and such university, went through these like charts and charts and charts and charts of taxation documents from that era and through that determined what the kind of how how taxation worked in Philadelphia, which how it worked is basically the tax guy would come around and based on what your home could be rented for or was being rented for, if you were a renter, they would tax you. But there was some wiggle room. Like if you were a widow, they wouldn't tax you as high because you're you might have this this, you know, this property, but you don't have liquid wealth because you can't work because you're a woman in the 18th century. So it, it, no, none of it had to do with windows. <laughs> Um, and so the the question of it, it being accessible, this is where it's hard. So what I do when I pick a book, because I'm a, especially as a podcaster, a tour guide, I don't have time to go real deep. And most of the time I'm reading what are called secondary sources, which are books written by people who presumably went through the the primary sources, which are things like your newspapers, your tax documents, diaries, things like that. And I look at who they are. What I'm looking for is either somebody who works at a university or is a journalist because journalists are really good at digging stuff up. And even if they're not, it doesn't mean I don't read the book or I don't believe the book, but it gives that I it just changes how I read it. And I also look at like, OK, what other things have they done? So I recently I have a I recently did some research on a guy, Robert Fortune, who stole tea from China. And there's like two books available about him, one of which is kind of a pop history book. And the other one is more academic looking, but it uses a what is now considered an outdated term for people from the Asian continent. In the title, this book was written like five years ago. So I looked at that and said, OK, this guy has the better credentials, 
But the fact that he used that word in the title makes me really skeptical of everything else that's going to be in this book. I ended up going to the pop history book and just really checking her sources really close. And her sources actually were, were good. They were she used primary sources. So I don't know what the big fuss was about. Probably she was a woman. But <laughs> the that's most of what I do is I just look at who wrote it, who paid for it, who's benefiting from it. And that doesn't mean I don't read it or don't believe it. I just take that into account as I assess what I read. Yeah, I think that's so I'm glad that you shared that because I think that's so important. First of all, that you said, you know, time, you don't necessarily have time to go super deep. And I think that's one of the challenges with people sometimes is they feel like, well, I don't have time. So I'm just not going to pay attention. Um, or I'll let someone else tell me and I'll just believe them. But I, I like that you do that. You're, you're essentially critically looking at the information because you're taking into account all of what's what's contained, right? What they're saying, but not what they're saying. Sometimes you can find their sources if you need to reference, but also who's writing it. So you're considering the perspective. So I like that. Um, what are some, what are some things that people commonly get wrong? I, um, the Betsy Ross one is a big one and the taxes thing. That one's just like pet peeve of mine. Um, a, a lot of stuff is, is what I call tour guideisms because what happens with tour guides? I, I love I love my people, my tour guides, but mm-hmm. there's there's some not great stuff that happens in the industry. And one of those things is when people enter the industry, a lot of them didn't necessarily come from a academic history background. A lot of them are mm-hmm. retirees or they came out of hospitality, which is sort of tangential, tangentially related to tourism. And yeah. so they have to learn a lot of information really fast. And when you do that, a lot of times you are watching other tour guides. And when you get on those first couple of tours, you are basically just parroting what those other tour guides were saying. And if you don't then go back when you like in the winter, when you have time and double check everything, you're going to just keep saying this. And after a year or two, you're the tour guide that the new tour guide is is training off of. And so they say whatever thing that you know, and it goes down the line. And from that, we get these absolutely wild stories. Like in, I used to work in Washington, D.C. with student tours. And I'd hear these tour guides say things like like that uh, Jefferson Davis is on the back of Lincoln's head in the Lincoln Memorial. He is not. That is not a thing. <laughs> you can go up to uh, the art studio in, I think it's Vermont, New Hampshire, somewhere up there. And walk all the way around the like littler version of the Lincoln Memorial. Like there's, it's it's just it's just his head. It just looks kind of weird when you're like standing below it and like trying to peek around it. Um, and <laughs> there's also a lot of stories about why Washington D.C.'s streets are the way they are. Coming going from like Pierre Lafont, and he he was it by it seems all accounts, not an easy guy to work with. But what exactly did he do to get fired? There's all kinds of stories. There's, and then you can get get really in the weeds and you have like the conspiracy theory people are like, it's a Masonic symbol, blah, blah, blah. And it, when you just repeat the stuff that people say, just because you like the person doesn't mean it's true. Yes. Oh my gosh. I hear that so much. Well, he's a good guy. He's a really good guy. Okay. And? It doesn't mean you can't be wrong. I have said very wrong things on tour, especially those early days when I was learning. Well, that's good to know. It's good for people to know because I I don't think I – I guess I would have assumed that most of what I'm hearing is going to be completely factual. Um, So that's really interesting. I I recently – 
well, not over the summer, in May, I was visiting Philadelphia, as I mentioned to you. I'm looking to move there. I think I mentioned it to you. Yes. Anyways. Um, okay. And we did the Eastern State Penitentiary Tour. They and, are really good. Okay. They seemed really good. They're really good. I used to work there. Um, okay. I probably shouldn't say it on the podcast, but that's all right. Uh, they have a re- – they're they are extremely strict. They okay. have, like, a, a, a bookshelf of sources – they're the only things the tour guides can use. They are stricter okay. than any other place I've ever seen. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Then <laughs> then the stories that I heard were most likely true. Most likely. And well, there are things. They, they have a, a cute thing they call Folklore Friday with the tour mm-hmm. guides because there is a lot of folklore that they will do. There's always more to learn. And so there's stuff that I was taught when I worked there years and years ago before the pandemic that I have since found out was not the case. And they did genuinely think those things were real. It was just more evidence came out as they continued to go through the archives. So there was a story that this one guy, that there was only one person who escaped Eastern State and was never recaptured. That that was always our that was always our mantra. But it's not the case. There's actually a couple of people. But they just didn't know about oh. it. Yeah. But they didn't know about it when I was there. So Yeah, but I think – I feel like my recollection from my tour was that there was just one guy too. I mean, multiple people escaped, but just one one guy was never caught. The other people were caught. And to be fair, with sources, this was like – where I'm getting this from was I was like chatting with like somebody on management like during Halloween nights or something. And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah no, oh, we found other stuff. I can't stuff. wait to go to that. So like it's uh, – I could be wrong. <laughs> well, saying. I think it's I think it's just interesting. I think it just it just displays that this is a living breathing thing. And and kind of with that in mind, something that I also think about a lot when it comes to history is um sometimes we have conversations or things come up and I hear history being referred to almost as though we still live there. And let me explain. Like you can't do or say this. And I'm going to get myself in trouble here because <laughs> I don't – please, nobody assume what I'm talking about, okay? Because it probably is not what you're thinking I'm talking about. But um, they'll say, oh, you can't say that or do that because, you know, historically this is what it meant. Without considering contextually that we're not there anymore, no matter how far in the history books that may be and how much progress we may have made, whether it's – been resolved or not, you know, a lot of different things. I'm not talking about black history. Let me just say that because I know everyone's <laughs> going to think I'm thinking I'm talking about that. I am not. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, but I think context does matter. We don't live in history. So how can what are your thoughts on how we can explore, appreciate, really learn more about history without taking it to an extreme of where well, with with understanding the relevant context of today, the modern processes of today. I don't know if that made sense. Yeah. No, it makes sense. <laughs> um, okay. The big thing in my mind is to always be curious and always have an open mind. Because like I said, we are still always learning. Uh, when I took a medieval history class in college – they told me that the Black Plague was one thing, and now it's been discovered to be something else. We learn stuff, and things change. And so just having that curiosity. And 
also to recognize that people in the past weren't stupid. Uh, they were just as smart as we are. They just or not smart as it as it may or may not be. And uh, they didn't do things that don't make sense. That said, sometimes what makes sense does change. So, for example, when you look at medical history, it's easy to look back and laugh at them saying, oh, you can cure tuberculosis by eating lots of beef and exercising a lot. This seems funny to us now because tuberculosis is a bacterial infection, and the only way to defeat it is through antibiotics. But they were just working with the information they had, and the information they had was people lose muscle mass when they are ill with tuberculosis. And how do you gain muscle mass? Eating lots of protein and exercising. It happens to be like literally the worst thing you could do to somebody with tuberculosis, but they were working with the information they had. And so just having some grace for people living in history is is one of my pet peeves. Um, and finally, I guess, you know, it really comes down to that curiosity is to take look at it like a scientist. They We, we tend to separate the humanities from the sciences, but we have what we have the same, especially with history and social sciences and so forth, is that things are always being discovered. Things are always changing. You never know when somebody's going to open a drawer in some archive and find this like earth shattering document. It happens every day. Like these archives, they don't like every time there's like some drama about like such and such terrible thing was found in this museum's archive. It doesn't make it not terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> but like, I would bet, like, dollars to donuts that they didn't know that was there until someone opened a box and went, oh, what is this? We, we, it's, we have no idea. There are always things happening. And so you have to stay curious and keep an open mind, not be sure that you know what you know. Right. And I completely agree with this. Also having grace. Um, I am skeptical of a lot of things. I'm also just like insatiably curious. And I think the reason why I'm skeptical is because that's my way of being curious, perhaps. It, or, or maybe it's not. Maybe I'm just like a <laughs> lunatic in my own brain. But I think rapidly, well, at least over the last few years, we've seen some rapid shifts in ways of being. I mean, if not that I want to bring COVID up, but like if we think about that, people are very critical about how things were handled, but we only can work with the information that we know. You can't you can't look back on it and say you did this this and this wrong. We didn't know at that point, right? Right. And, and actually, that's just one example. It's a that good we all example through, too. But yeah. Because a lot of the information was coming from some very good sources, the CDC, the WHO. And we were given direction from like the CDC that we didn't need to wear masks in the beginning. And we now know that the reason for that was they were worried about there being a rush on masks that would be needed in hospitals and things like that. But like, that did, we now know that did a huge amount of damage uh, because people are like, well, the CDC said we didn't need masks and now they're saying we do need masks. Like, what is this? And so it's a good example of how even a good source sometimes isn't always right. And that's why being open to new information is really important. Yes, 100%. All right. Are you ready for the final three questions? Sure. 
Okay. So the first one is, uh, by the nature of the show, we are the Breaking Bias podcast, looking to explore certain bias. So what bias do you have? Just one. You don't have to name all of them. <laughs> how did you become conscious of it? And how do you go about challenging it or keeping it in the forefront of your awareness? For me, it's definitely class. I was raised with this idea that America is like a post-class society, which is super not the case. And I found as I started to – when I moved into the city and I lived in a more diverse neighborhood, I realized that a lot of the assumptions I had about people were really about like how much education did they have? What sort of job did they have? How much money did they have? And I wasn't doing that on purpose. Obviously, that's the whole point of a bias, right? But I have learned to, when I have that gut reaction to somebody, to take a step back and try to figure out why am I feeling that? And use, like, honestly, cognitive behavioral therapy skills I learned in therapy uh, of, like, okay, is, is this thing that I am basing this on a fact or is it an assumption? And I think that's really important because also, like we were talking about in the beginning, like, Knowledge can come from all sorts of sources, and we have to be open to it. Yep. I love it. I love it. Okay. So basically, it came to light for you, or you became really aware of it by immersion, by being somewhere that forced you to recognize it. Yeah. All right. I like it. Okay. Um, in this phase of life, what are five words that you would say you connect with personally? Okay, this is one I had to write down because I'm always really bad at, like, words. <laughs> Where is it? Here we go. So it's kind of a weird mix. Um, I should do these in some sort of order. Uh, hopeful, like, starting on a lot of new phases of my life, and so I'm hopeful that they will work out. Um, and on that same, uncertain, because when you are at the cusp of new things, there's always this uncertainty and, and concern. A little ironic because uh, – the thing that's paying the bills right now is my music education, not my history education. And so uh, that was, it's always very funny to me because people always say, oh, music, are you sure? And like for me, music's like my backup. Teaching music lessons, always my backup. Everything else goes wrong. Rich people love teaching their kid piano. Um, let's see. And fear. There's a lot going on in the world right now. It's not, a, not the, the easiest time to be a queer Jew. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's scary. Like with this election that's coming up and so forth, it's, I have a lot of respect for people who disagree with me, but there is, there's a limit and that limit is where, you know, it, it starts to impact like person, my personhood or the personhood of my community and, uh, agency, because a lot of what this stuff of like taking another step in different directions and so forth is around me really like taking control of my agency and making decisions for myself for what I want to do. Um, I actually have, I got a tattoo recently. It says, uh, I fly the ship on it and it has the enterprise. It's a quote from strange new worlds. But I heard, as soon as I heard that, I was like, Oh, that's, that is exactly the moment I'm, I'm in right now. Like I'm really, I think for the first time in my life, really flying my own ship. Oh, okay. I really appreciate all those words. Those are very um, powerfully thought out words. 
maybe that didn't go together, but they were powerful words and they were, they're clearly thought out. So I really appreciate that. Um, and we didn't even talk about, we didn't even talk about, um, you know, your, your LGBTQ plus status or, or the, the current status that must, you must, anything that you must be feeling surrounding being Jewish. So, uh, maybe pin in this for another time. Yeah. Until, until then, where can everybody go to connect with you, um, learn more, find your podcast? Yeah. So the podcast is called Delisters of History, and we cover interesting and important people you didn't learn about in school. And so these are people who are, I think, interesting and had some sort of impact on the world we are living today, but don't always get the credit or just, you know, they weren't a person that you learned about because you only have so much time in school. And so every other week we focus on a person. On the off weeks, we talk about the historical background of some current event. Those are shorter episodes. And you can find the podcast basically on any podcatcher of choice. We also have a website, deliciousofhistory.com, which has access to our socials. Um, we're delisters of history on all of those. And it's no hyphen, just delisters of history, just straight through. Okay, perfect. We will make sure that all of those go in the show notes so people can connect. Thank you so much for joining me today. As no one knows this except for us, but we we pushed through some challenges and <laughs> yeah. I'm excited. I'm glad that we did. It was it was definitely worth it. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, I think we both learned a little more about technology today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Testing the waters. Testing the waters. Thank you for listening in to another episode of the Breaking Bias podcast. How do you experience history? How do you learn history? And are you using it as a crutch or as a stepping stone? I believe through conversations and questions just like this, we can all set fire to our ignorance and rise from those ashes together as better humans. As a reminder, the thoughts and opinions that were expressed on today's episode, they're our own. We encourage you to do your own research and come to your own conclusions. Please hit the show notes up to find ways on how to connect with Fega. And also, if you'd like to connect with the show, we would love for you to head on over to the website. It is breakingbiaspodcast.com, where you can find all of the links to our social media and other valuable resources. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. Please share the show with others so they can also join in these conversations and ask these important questions. And until next time, don't forget to check your bias and keep the conversations going. <laughs>